Leviticus. Leviticus begins with and, the continuation of the story, just like Exodus began with and. The Hebrew title for Leviticus is Vayakra. Vayakra is the first word of Leviticus, which basically means and he called. So it says, then and Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the meeting tent. Now remember, now at this point, the meeting tent is the tabernacle. So the Jews often just name the books of their Bible after the first word or two. And so basically what it begins with is, and he called. So Leviticus begins with the calling of Israel. And what he's going to do is he's going to bring them into their calling by teaching them how to purify themselves so they can enter the tabernacle they were not allowed to enter into. That's their calling. Their calling is God is calling to them from the tabernacle to teach them how to be purified so that they can enter the tabernacle with him. And that's how, the, now, the, 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 later when the um, Christians came along, they named it after the Levites, Leviticus, things pertaining to the Levites, because that's just the people in charge of the purification. So that's the difference between the two titles. So the setting is this. Just a little overview. They have been promised by God through Abraham to become a great nation and to dwell in the land and to be blessed so they can be a blessing to the world. And God is now fulfilling that. They are in Egypt. doesn't hurt to give you the broad picture every once in a while. They are in Egypt and they spend 11 months in Egypt with God bringing the 10 plagues. So 11 months, they watch these 10 plagues unfold. To which at the end of 11 months, Moses leads them out of Egypt with a pillar of fire and cloud leading them. It takes them 50 days to get Mount Sinai. They get to Mount Sinai, and the first thing that God does is he comes down the mountain, and he appears to them, and he speaks his blessings to them. I will make you a special possession, personal blessings, to be a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So basically, so the world can be blessed through you. Then he speaks the law to them, which we already talked about. So he spends uh, like a couple hours speaking the law to them. And then Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days. He receives instructions for the tabernacle. And he comes down and gives it to them after the golden calf. They renew the covenant with God. And then they spend about 11 months building the tabernacle. So it's about 11 months in Egypt during the plagues and 50 days to Mount Sinai and then about 11 months building the tabernacle. So the Leviticus takes place during, at the very end of that 11 months. Because once they have the tabernacle, they're going to have to purify the tabernacle and they're going to have to purify the priest so the priest can go in. So basically, actually, it's going to work this way. They're going to purify the priest so the priest can go into the tabernacle to purify the tabernacle so the priest can then make sacrifices on behalf of the people to purify them so that they can have access to the courtyard. Once that's all done, then they're ready to head off to the promised land. Leviticus is the story of the priest being purified, the tabernacle being purified, and the people being purified. And once that happens, 
Then the book of Numbers is their journey to the promised land and their refusal to enter it and their wandering around. Does that make sense? That's the setting. So in total, it's going to be about two years that they're going to be before they enter the the promised land. Now the structure of this book. The structure is this. This is what's called a chiastic structure. Chiasm is just basically the Greek letter X. It's the first letter of Christ, Christos. And it's basically, it's forming this X. So you have an A at the top and an A at the bottom, and they're mirroring each other. And then you have a B at the top and a B at the bottom, and they're mirroring each other, and a C at the top and a C at the bottom, and they're mirroring each other. And then you have this thing in the middle. Now, you can have more than A, B, C, depending on who the author is and what he's doing. And a lot of times the center one could be double letters. But basically what he's doing here, this happens a lot in the Bible. Basically what a chiastic structure is, is God gives you something and then repeats it in reverse order. Now this does two things. The first thing it does is it helps you memorize this. Okay, when you're talking about a culture that memorized everything, then a lot of these, new, these devices help you memorize it. So when you're going through and you're memorizing and you get them all and then you go and there's no parallel, you're like, oh, I forgot something. Okay, so it helps you remember that you forgot something. The other thing it does is by everything leading up to X and then everything leading out of X, it shows you that X is the emphasis. Okay, X is the pivotal point. So it's God's way of leading all these things to it by saying that's the most important thing. Okay, and if you ever wonder, like, how do scholars and, like, pastors, like, get what the main idea of the book is? A lot of times it's just this. They get it because they're like, uh, everything leads to here and then everything leads out of it. Oh, that's the main idea. And the main idea here is the Day of Atonement. This is the day that Israel and the tabernacle are going to become purified. That's the main point of Leviticus, is the Day of Atonement. Now, if you've watched the videos, this is the structure. The videos went through it, but with a lot more cool graphics and colors and all that kind of stuff. So you saw this in the videos with the little, especially the one with the diamonds at the top. And it talked about um, sacrifices, then the cleansing of the priesthood, and cleansing and all that kind of stuff. So basically what you have is rituals, and these rituals are animal sacrifices, followed by the priesthood being ordained and purified, because you can't purify the priests until you know how to purify them. And that's animal sacrifice. Once you have animal sacrifice, then the priests are purified. Then you are to learn how other people can be purified and enter the tabernacle. That then leads to the actual purification of the priests, the purification of the tabernacle, and the purification of the um, people. Then on the um, downside, you have the purity of moral conduct. So this is sexual behavior and all those laws and that kind of stuff. And then the priests are emphasized again, except now that focus is on the priests and how they're supposed to live, who they're supposed to marry, what their wife is supposed to be like. And then on sacred days and festivals. These are the, the, the celebrations, the holidays. So here's the emphasis here. The first A, B, and C is how the people and the tabernacle are going to be purified so that the people and God can dwell together. The second half, C, B, and A, is once the people are purified and they leave the tabernacle, how do they live a purified life outside the tabernacle? So this is how do you become purified to get into the presence of God. And then when you're walking out of the doors of the church, so to speak, on Sunday morning, and you're going back out into the life 
after you've been refreshed and convicted and encouraged by God, how do you then go out and live a purified life? And so this whole book is about purification. This whole book is about purification. So how do you get purified to enter the presence of God? And once you're purified, how do you live a purified life outside the presence of God? Now, part of what A, B, and C at the beginning also does is what happens if you don't live a purified life outside the presence of God or the tabernacle, then A, B, and C, the first ones, are teaching how you get purified again so you can go back in. Because remember, this is going to be a continual process. It's not like they just do this one time and they're done. They do it one time to restore Israel to the tabernacle, but then the individuals are going to have to do this on a continual basis. Just like you have to repent on a continual basis in order to receive the relationship with God. So that's the structure. The Day of Atonement is the pivot. Now another way of looking at this, and here's the beauty of God. He can like do this in all different ways and still kind of make the same point. There's another chiastic structure, but this is based on an alternation between laws and narrative. So the story begins with legal dialogue, sacrifices. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Then it goes to narrative of how a story about the priest becoming purified and ordained. Then it goes to legal again about do this, do this, do this, do this when you're eating foods and and the really fun chapters, discharges, okay, and skin diseases. And then it goes, the middle, the X is legal and narrative. There's the legal of the Day of Atonement as well as its kind of narrative. It feels very legal, but it's also a story. And so he mixes the legal and the narrative together. Then we go to legal. This is how you're to do the festivals. And then we go to narrative, a man blasphemy against Yahweh and being condemned to death. And then we go back to legal with the Sabbaths and the vows and the ties. And so God is using these things to basically make this point. Now, the, I've already mentioned what the first point of that chiastic structure is. The point is the Day of Atonement. The point of this is that this is mostly narrative. We often think of Leviticus as boring laws. But the idea is that the, the narrative helps you understand the law. You see, this isn't just reading some legal document and you're like, oh my gosh, my eyes are just like blurring over. Now, some people love that and kudos to them, but the most people don't. But what it's doing is it's saying, God's saying, I'm not just giving you random legal material. It, it, the narrative helps you understand the legal material and why I'm giving you the legal material. Numbers is going to do the same thing. It's going to be story, laws, story, laws, story, laws. So God isn't just giving you legal material for the sake of legal material. He's giving you legal material because it has to do with what's going on in Israel's history. And that's important for you to understand as we go through this. So that's the structure, basically. So what is the purpose of Leviticus? The purpose of Leviticus is to reveal how a sinful Israel could have a, maintain a relationship with the holy Yahweh who dwelt among them and could express that relationship through worship. This book is mostly about worship. This isn't about praising God with songs and that kind of stuff. Remember, worship is not praising God. Praising God is praising God. This is about how you conduct yourself in a pure way. That's your worship. Your worship is how you live and how you talk in a righteous and pure way. And so the point of this book is to teach you how to live a pure life 
so you can worship God in his presence in the tabernacle and worship God outside of the tabernacle and your daily life. And yes, we're not under all these purification laws anymore, but in a way we are, and that's what we're going to talk about as we go through Leviticus. Now, as I've already mentioned, we're not going to go verse by verse like we did with Exodus. I'm just going to deal with large sections as we go through. My assumptions, you've already read it. Okay, To a certain extent, this is a lot of legal matter. And so we're going to go through, but I want you to read through it kind of get a good a familiar idea. That's why I want you to watch the videos. They help you understand what you're actually reading and it gives you an outline. But I'm going to deal with it in large sections. And so I'm going to do basically um, two main things here. I'm going to help you understand the main idea that God is trying to communicate in that section. I'm not going to go into overly detail into all the details because we're not under that anymore. If you want to do that, that's another. Th- you can do that. And I got the notes. I went through all the details with you. But my main focus in this study is to focus on the main big ideas of what God is trying to communicate with cleansing and sacrifices and discharges and all that kind of stuff. The second thing we're going to do is help you understand, though we do not do this anymore because we're not under law, how it's still incredibly crucial to understand what God is saying because in a way we are. We're not under it in a legal, I have to do it to be a part of the covenant sense, but we are under it in the sense that this is still the character of God. This is still who he is. And he expects us to still live in the same way because God does not change. But the question is, how do we translate that through Christ today? Because Christ is greater than the law because Christ is God. And so the question then is, how do I take these legal laws that are just words, but they're still God's words, and translate them through Christ who lives in me and is greater than the law, but yet he gave the law and he came to fulfill the law. And those are the two things I'm going to focus mostly because I think that's where we're going to benefit more than let's memorize every type of animal every person is supposed to bring. Okay, we'll still go through that, but I'm not going to, for lack of a better phrase, I'm not going to test you over that. What I would test you over as a Christian today is do you understand the point that God's making and how Christ translates this into our life today. And, and I think that's what's going to be the most beneficial for all of us as well. So we're not going to focus on the details. Um, we're going to focus on that. And so basically that's the purpose. How do they live a purified life so that they can worship God in the tabernacle and outside? The second idea here is what I've already mentioned. <clears throat> the book of Exodus ends with the fact that they're not able to enter the tabernacle because of their sin. So the Leviticus is not just a general, how do you become purified to be with God? But at this point in history, it's a very specific, how do you become purified right now? Because you're not able to enter the tabernacle because you're sin with the golden calf. Like right now, the entire nation is defiled. And so basically the way God set it up is this. You've entered a covenant with me, but you're defiled, which means you can't literally enter my presence. So Leviticus is going to teach you how to become purified so that you can literally enter my presence as a nation. Once the entire nation is purified and they're holy and they're right before God and they can dwell with them, then the Leviticus is how does the individual get purified when they lose their purification. So the whole nation will be purified 
and that'll be right. But then you, and then you, and then you, and then you might sin in different parts of your life at different times, and you'll become defiled. So then what do you have to go through to repurify yourself to get back into the tabernacle? Because the whole nation doesn't have to go through this again if the whole nation didn't do it. And so that, those are the two main ideas of Leviticus, a very specific historical event of purifying the nation, and then just general, this is how you become purified, as individual people become defiled at different times in their life. And that's the main purpose of Leviticus, of what he's trying to communicate here. Does that make sense? And hopefully this will become clearer and clearer as we go through. Now remember, the whole time that you're thinking about this, as we're doing the Christ application, um, Romans 12.1 clearly states that our bodies are to be presented to God as a spiritual act of worship, that our bodies are a living sacrifice to God as a spiritual worship. So as we go through this thing, we need to keep that in mind. We're not just purifying the tabernacle. This is about purifying your body. This isn't just about an animal sacrifice to God for sins. This is the fact that you're the living sacrifice to God so that you can worship God. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to translate this from a tabernacle and an animal to you in your life with God as the temple of God. There are three major themes. There's tons of themes in every book of the Bible, but there's three we're going to focus on. The first theme is the presence of Yahweh. And I know some of this might sound very repetitious, but guess what? We don't remember things very well, and repetition is the hallmark of Jewish literature and the key to learning. And so don't ever tell a teacher we've heard this before. Okay, don't ever tell God that we've heard this before because then he'll just point to your track record and said, but you're not acting like it. Okay, there's a reason things get repeated a lot. So hopefully the repetition will be helpful and hopefully you will not be bored. I'm big on synonyms, so I'm not saying the same thing exactly the same way. So the first purpose is the presence of Yahweh. And we've already talked about this. How does Israel get into the presence of Yahweh? And that is through purification. The main way that God is demonstrating his presence is through the pillar of fire on the tabernacle because that is where they're going to encounter the presence of God in space, time, and matter. It's a very specific space, the tabernacle, on a very specific time, the Sabbaths, which are weekly, sabbatical years, as well as jubilee, as well as seven festivals. So all those Sabbaths, are the very specific time that you go to a very specific space in order to encounter God in a very materialistic pillar of fire kind of a way. And so God has done something that he's never done for anybody else. He has come to be with Israel in space, time, and matter. And he's made it very clear that if they obey his commandments and they do the necessary rituals, he will walk with them. And they will encounter and live with God in space, time, and matter. And that's the same thing that goes for us. You may be saved by Christ, but only in your obedience to his righteous expectations do you get to experience the benefits of a relationship with Christ. Just like you may be married and you may have friends, that doesn't mean you're always experiencing the blessings and the benefits of your marriage and your friendships if you're constantly walking in a selfish disobedient, disrespectful, unloving way with your friends, your family, your spouse. And so that's what God is making clear. The people as a whole are his, but they only get to enjoy the blessings if they walk with them. He also makes it very clear 
that if they do not obey him, that not only will he not walk with them, he specifically says in Leviticus that he will walk against them. In the same way that he walked against Egypt. And so remember, there's this tension between God is giving Israel access in a way that nobody else has it. But that does not mean that he's playing favorites with them. Because their access is to be purified so that others can have that access. And if they disobey, they will be punished in the same way that others have been punished. And that's very clear. That's the theme all throughout the Bible. And when you get to the prophets, the prophets pound that one. Like, did you honestly think that you were God's favorite? Do you honestly think that he would have overlooked all that? Did you honestly watch what he did to all the nations and thought, oh, we're different? And the prophets just pound that one hard. The second theme is God's holiness. Now, what does it mean to be holy? We have been taught growing up that the holiness of God means to be separate. Now, that's true, but that's so narrow and not full enough. I mean, this is the holiness of God. The word separate is not enough. Okay? To be holy means to be set apart. But you have to understand something that there are the, there, there, there's what's called the immutable and the mutable attributes of God. Okay? God has attributes and character traits. His attributes are immutable. Immutable is a big fancy theological word that means that you can't get them. They're not transferable. You can't inherit them. You can't gain them. You can't copy them. So his immutable traits or attributes would be his all-knowingness, the fact that he's all-powerful, the fact that he's omnipresent, the fact these things that are he who he is because he is God and we're not. We will never, ever, ever be able to be like God in that sense. But then there's his mutable ones, which are basically his character traits, love, peace, joy, hope, mercy, justice, compassion, those things that we're told to be like God and we're to be Christ-like. Those we can be like. Now, what's interesting is holiness is immutable. In order to be holy, to be separate from something, you have to be separate from it. And we're not separate from this creation. We're not separate from these desires. We're not separate from the world in any kind of a way. And therefore, we can't be holy. And there's no way we can be holy in ourselves. There's no way we can copy him and reflect that and all that kind of stuff because the holiness is the sense of his uniqueness. Now, where you kind of the best way to kind of get this definition is it does mean separate. But when you get to Isaiah chapter 6, you see the seraphim, and there are these fiery angels communicating the holiness and the presence and the scariness and the, the wonder and the light and all that kind of stuff of God. They got six wings, two they're covering their feet, two they're covering their faces, two they're flying, they're cut, and they're on fire. And they're surrounding the throne of God. And God is on this throne that's like super high up there. And he is on this throne in a temple. And we're told that the, the train of his robe fills the entire temple. Now you have to understand that the longer your train of a king or a wedding dress is, the more powerful and wealthy you are. Because it's, fabric is not cheap. So the longer your fabric gets, the, the more of a statement you're saying, I'm all that. So when his robe fills the entire temple, which, by the way, is the earth, then that gives you an idea of his glory, his power, his sovereignty covers everything. So Isaiah steps into this presence, 
and he comes before God, and his first thought is, woe is me. I am a sinner among sinners. Now, the word woe means undone. And if Isaiah was a microbiologist, he probably would say on a molecular level, like being teleported through the um, Scotty beams you up and you don't reanimize right, like in the first Star Trek movie. Okay, that kind of a woe. Like, I am going to be completely annihilated and undone. I just cease to exist. I am this and that. There's no way I'm going to survive. And once again, God shows his mercy by cleansing his lips and purifying him to enable him to be a tool of God out to the nations. But one of the things that these seraphims are saying are holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, if you think of holiness as separateness, it's not as powerful when these angels are going separate, separate, separate is God. Like, yeah, no, that's kind of pathetic. Then we typically think, well, holiness is also morality and righteousness. Moral, moral, moral is God. That doesn't seem to communicate it. The holiness does communicate separateness, but in a separateness that you and I can never relate to. The idea that God is so transcendent and so otherly to anything that we could ever comprehend that he is absolutely unique and unfathomable and nothing in creation. The, the, the three-leaf clover, the egg, are blasphemous. And I'm trying to condemn you or judge you. This isn't like a prophet saying you're condemned by but to just to try to find anything in creation associated. In fact, he's going to say, you're not allowed to make any image of anything in creation to represent me because I am nothing. So this sense of holiness is not just separate as in like my red jelly beans are separate from all the other colors because I really like red. It's that there is nothing like him. He's completely unlike anything. He's indescribable. He's unfathomable. He's otherly. He's unworldly. He's, he's God. And when we come to his presence, people fall down. They pee their pants. They lose their words. They have no idea how to describe or what to do in this presence. Because, And you have to understand, nobody sees the face of God. When you get to Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees God more than anybody else does other than Moses. And Ezekiel says, I didn't see God, I saw his glory. But I didn't see his glory, I saw the appearance of his glory. But I didn't see the appearance of his glory, I saw the likeness of his appearance of the glory of God. And that makes him fall on the ground and feel like he's going to be wiped out and killed. That's holiness. Holiness is the absolute uniqueness and the otherness of God that there are no words or comparison to. And that even when we're in his presence for all eternity, there's still going to be an indescribable, unfathomable. I guarantee you that no matter how long you've been in eternity with God and as perfect and without sin as you are, one, you're not getting all your questions answered. But two, every time you come in his presence, there's going to be this undoing of you. You don't need to have sin in your life to feel undone. It's just, it's God. And so this, that's what the angels are communicating is holy, holy, holy. And in that sense, you and I can never be holy. We are easily explained. I mean, yeah, we're mysteries to each other's men and women. And yes, yeah, sometimes we don't even understand ourselves. But overall, 
were easily explained. I mean, no matter what culture you're in, no matter what story is being told at what time, people are always the same in every story. And once you translate the story in a new language, we can all relate to the character in the story because humans are always the same. You can never be holy. You will never be separate from all of this to become something totally unfathomable. And that's the holiness of God. But at the same time, when we get to Leviticus, God is going to say, be holy because I am holy. And he's going to declare the tabernacle holy. And he's going to make utensils in the tabernacle holy. And the altar, and you're like, we don't know. Because there's a certain sense that you can become holy when you disconnect yourself from the world and connect yourself to the will and the plan and the people of God. That you cannot be holy by acting like him, like being kind and compassionate. Lots of people can do that. Even without the Holy Spirit, lots of people can be compassionate. Lots of people can calm their anger down and da-da-da-da. But the only way you can be holy is when you detach yourself from this and attach yourself to God. And by the fact that you now become a part of him, you now are in his holiness. And you are holy in the fact that you're used by God for holy purposes. And now you become holy because he's going to use you in a way that is completely unfathomable and unique and indescribable to anything that the American dream or the world or your parents or government could ever, or your boss or your company or you and your own dreams could ever imagine yourself to be used. Because there's nothing new under the sun. And no matter what great dreams you have for yourself or your parents have for you or the American dream, it's still just the same old thing that everybody else can do. But only when you would detach yourself to the will and the purpose of God, then he then makes you holy. You can never make yourself holy. When you get to Leviticus, only God can declare you holy. And then he uses you in unfathomable ways. And that's how you become holy. Now, how do you then show yourself to be holy? And that's through your righteous acts. Morality and righteousness is not holiness righteousness and the way that God has defined it is how we show ourselves to be connected to him. Because then when we say, I want to be with you and know you more than anything else in the world, then we are pulled to him closer and we know him better and we begin to become more like him. And then we are acting like him and our righteous acts. And so then when people look at us, they say, wow, there's something different about you. You have a joy that I've never seen any other person. You have a hope that I've never seen. I've never seen somebody show compassion like that to somebody. I mean, yeah, I see people do stuff like that, but not like that, dun, 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 so consistently over and over and over again. It's because you have now been claimed by God, who is holy, and you become holy. Now, that's still just a drop in the bucket of probably what holiness means. (laughs) But that's what holiness means. And over and over and over again, this is about God being so holy that they can't enter his presence or they will die. So the other thing I want you to understand as we're going through this book is like all the things that they have to do just to get into the presence of God. They don't even get to go in the Holy of Holies. Most of the people don't even get to go into the holy place. This is just to get into the courtyard. And they have to do this and 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 this. And you're like, oh my gosh. And for those people who are not detail-oriented, your head's really spinning. 
just to get in the presence of God. And so one thing I want you to keep in the back of your mind is like, don't let your head spin in the details. Praise God that Christ has done all those details for you. That's the thing we need to look at. Is that all these details have been accomplished perfectly to the letter of the law through Christ. And I want you to understand something that we tend to take things for granted. That we actually get the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And we actually have Christ through the cross. And we take that for granted. And hopefully going through Leviticus will help you understand all the things that they had to do just to see the pillar. And yet you do nothing and you have Christ and the pillar actually in you. And so don't don't glaze over on the details. Praise God that you don't have to do those details and yet you have greater access. So let that sink into you. And so that's what God is communicating here. So basically the idea is that the tabernacle and the people have to be purified. 